Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based champion championship team. Are you ready to talk Padres baseball? We've got you covered. Now is the right time to bring back Padres Social Hour as we await the start of the regular season. Friar Faithful, get ready to sit back, relax, and join the conversation. Now, coming to you from everyone's homes around San Diego and beyond, it's Padres Social Hour with your host, Jesse Agler. And good evening, everybody. Welcome back to Padres Social Hour. Thank you for joining us this evening. We took a little bit of a break from the show yesterday. We weren't on yesterday, and I know a lot of folks have kind of been really great watchers and listeners of the program showing up each and every day. We appreciate you very much. So might have caught you off guard a little bit yesterday Why? Uh, when we didn't do the show. And I just want to take a very quick moment before we bring in Bob Scanlon and AJ Casvel to talk about why we didn't do a show yesterday. Uh, basically, when we restarted Padres Social Hour a couple of months ago, we did so uh, in the face of COVID-19 and the quarantine and just trying to bring a little slice and taste of normalcy and distraction and respite from the craziness of the world uh, by providing some Padre talk, some baseball talk, some of your you know, familiar personalities around the Padres just to, to be there for you and to help you kind of grind out an hour, maybe a little bit more uh, of your day. Um, but obviously, like the last week has not been just that. It's been a lot more. And uh, so we all kind of made the decision yesterday that, you know, maybe today is not the day to be distracted. Maybe today is a day to reflect and to look out at the world and not try and shield our eyes from it. So that was the reason we did not do a show yesterday, but we are back for you here today. We'll have some fun. We'll talk baseball. And of course, we will keep everything going on in the world uh, in mind. So with that being said, as mentioned, very happy to bring in Bob Scanlon and AJ Casavell, very familiar faces, uh, joining us here today. Gentlemen, always a pleasure and appreciate uh, your time very much. Glad to see you're both uh, healthy and sane. Scan, by the way, it's like it, I haven't had a haircut in two months. Bob's, it's perfect. Your hair is perfect. <laughs> Jesse, AJ, great to see you guys. And thanks, Jesse. You know what? If you add a ton of product, you can make miracles happen, even with hair that hasn't been cut in four months. So that, that's what we're striving for right here. It hasn't helped the gray very much, though. That, that's still showing up in, in plenty of hue. Your hair has been all right? four months, and it looks like that. You, you, you don't want to see the back. I got, I got the man bun going in the back. So. <laughs> <laughs> I hide all of that. AJ had stopped getting haircuts uh, like at the end of the last baseball season. So for him, this is actually, actually kind of been, Yeah, I know. It's kind of been uh, business <laughs> as usual. Uh, all right. So, you know, we mentioned, um, you know, after the tragedy of uh, last week in Minneapolis and everything in the aftermath, um, you know, we've heard from a lot of brands and, and leagues and teams and everything like that. And both the Padres and Major League Baseball uh, released their statements uh, first, starting with the Padres, uh, simple, direct, to the point. Padres stand in solidarity with the black community in the fight against systemic racism, injustice, and depression. Racism has no place here. We are San Diego uh, together as one. So that was yesterday from the Padres. Uh, Major League Baseball uh, got on the act, I guess it was this morning, after uh, some time. Uh, they offer condolences uh, to just a few of, unfortunately, the many uh, who have had their lives cut tragically short in recent times. George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, uh, and as, as they say, all families that have lost loved ones due to senseless killing and injustice. To be clear, our game has zero tolerance for racism and racial injustice. The reality that the black community lives in fear or anxiety over racial discrimination, prejudice, or violence is unacceptable. 
Addressing the issue requires action both within our sport and society. MLB is committed to engaging our communities to invoke change. We will take the necessary time, effort, and collaboration to address symptoms of systemic racism, prejudice, and injustice, but will be equally as focused on the root of the problem. Um, kind of an interesting launching off point there for MLB pointing to the future, not necessarily saying specifically what they'll do. And there's time, obviously, to figure that out. And I'm sure they'll get together with uh, the relevant groups to try and do so. Um, but we've seen that from a lot of uh, these statements and the different things that have been said. Hey, it's not just about today. It's not just about putting a statement out and saying our piece. It's about what comes afterwards, because that's when the real change is going to happen. And kind of along those lines, I want to share something that Padre prospect Taylor Trammell uh, put up on Instagram yesterday. Uh, and if you're on social media, I'm sure you saw yesterday uh, Blackout Tuesday where a lot of people just put up blank screens on their social media platforms. Uh, and this is what, what Taylor wrote on his Instagram account. Let me make one thing straight and clear as can be. This isn't a trend to just put, your, put on your story or IG for clout. It's not something to check off your list to say you did something or to make you feel good about yourself. We need support from everyone to change. If you are behind us now, we expect it for the long haul. And I think that's perhaps as good of a way to, to leave it as possible. Um, you know, Taylor, I, I think getting the, the last word on this is, is more appropriate than any of the three of us. Um, but I, I like that. Let's let's think about this every single day, not when it perhaps fades off the front pages of the papers and off the front of our social media feeds and off the front of the TV news and uh, continue to try and make things better. And that's, I think, what MLB was pointing at with their statement and certainly what Taylor is reminding us of. So that's sort of the uh, the real world situation going on right now. Uh, continue to to hope for progress, obviously, as uh, this country continues to navigate through a very difficult time. From a baseball standpoint, no good segue there. Not even going to try. Uh, the 2020 season, of course, has been up in the air for some time now. Those uh, public negotiations and private negotiations going on between the league and the Players Association sort of bouncing back and forth. This was the news earlier today from Ken Rosenthal, um, which didn't necessarily sound particularly positive. MLB rejected the union's proposal for a 114-game season, said it would not send a counter. Sources tell The Athletic, the league said it has started talks with owners about playing a shorter season without fans and that it is ready to discuss additional ideas with the union. So they're saying we'll discuss stuff with you, but we're not going to counter. Main point being, I guess, that they are going to continue to talk, and that's the most important thing. Um, Bob, I saw this at the beginning of the day. I didn't feel great about where baseball was headed, but in the last hour, hour and a half, maybe all of a sudden I'm starting to sense positivity, uh, trickle out from different places. A lot of the reporters who are very plugged into this kind of thing, not necessarily tweeting straight off information, but starting to hint and suggest, uh, that things are, are productive. My sense, and, and obviously take it wherever you want to take it. My sense is both sides fully understand they don't have a lot of time to play with here. Jesse, I would agree with you. Everybody understands that there is a timeline on this. If you want to have baseball start and have any kind of a meaningful season, you need to get it going. And in the past, when there have been negotiations and, and the two sides have come to an impasse on things, they've always had the luxury or usually had the luxury of saying, OK, well, we can go to arbitration. We can take this to the courts. Those opportunities don't exist in this situation. They're on a hard timeline, and there's just some realities of something has to get done. Hopefully, that's enough to bring both sides to an agreement at some point, because right now, I think we're all a little frustrated that this is going on publicly and that there's not been something that's been able to come to, to an agreement on both sides. We understand the, the issue that both sides are facing. Ownership is looking at losing money for playing baseball if the players get paid at the full amount that they're expecting. The players, on the other hand, feel like, look, we had an agreement. We expect to get paid what we were promised to get paid. So you understand both sides, but as a fan, you want to see baseball. And I'm hoping that we can get that going. But Jesse, this is not unusual because in my experiences in, in these types of negotiations, there's a lot of stuff that's going on publicly, but there's a whole lot of stuff that's going on behind the scenes also. And that's usually where the deals get done. And so it's encouraging to your point that in the last hour, hopefully some of those back channels are making some progress and something can get done here sooner rather than later because time is running out. Yeah, I think there's probably a lot of semantics maybe involved in in what's going on on both sides as to there won't be a proposal, but there will be discussions. Well, discuss, I mean, maybe discussions are necessary before there is a proposal. Maybe you need to find out kind of where the players might give and take some or where the owners might give and take some. And so, um, yeah, this, the the Ken Rosenthal report wasn't the most optimistic thing for baseball, but also I think we've we've kind of come to or at least I've kind of come to almost accept the ebbs and flows a little bit and hope that that ultimately we get to where we need to get to because both sides have the same kind of common interest.
Yeah, if you're following the blow by blow, it's a, it's a real roller coaster right now. That's not yeah. necessarily the best way to get the full picture, Bob. I think you said it perfectly. There's a lot of stuff happening behind the scenes uh, that we're not hearing about that is probably, um, or at least possibly, far more significant than anything that's being batted about uh, in the public sphere and through the media and everything like that. So um, you might ask, like, well, well, Jesse, what did you see that got you optimistic? Um, it was just sort of what AJ said that you know. The, MLB doesn't want to act unilaterally. Um, that's one thing. They do want to be able to come to a, an agreement of some kind with the players. Um, and on top of that, it sounds like, based on a couple of reports, they're very close, if not on the same page, when it comes to health and safety. They're very close, if not on the same page, when it comes to rule changes, the DH, expanded playoffs, roster size, all that kind of stuff. So that shows you, I think, also, Bob, they've been working in the background on all of those things to try and get that stuff buttoned up so that when they do get the money part figured out, all right, it can be like all systems go ready for launch. Exactly, Jesse. And we'd sort of discussed this in the previous couple of weeks in terms of the ebbs and flows of these types of negotiations. And it's not just, hey, here's a big chunk of information with 100 different topics. Let's get them all taken care of at the same time. Usually they are parceled out. A group will handle this issue. Another group is handling the other issue. And, and you try to find some positive things. Look, both sides want to come to an agreement. And even if it's a small thing, like you come to an agreement on how many people should be allowed in the clubhouse at a time, how we're going to do the testing, how teams are going to travel, that type of thing. When you come to an agreement, you both, you're like, okay, cool. We're, we're finding some middle ground here. We are agreeing on some things. And, and both sides sort of need that positive support, even on little topics to say, okay, look, we've come so far on these little things. We know we can work together. We can come to some compromises and agreements on stuff. Now we need to tackle the big topic here, which is, you know, you know the, the elephant in the room, so to speak. Um, and, and again, a lot of times these smaller things are put into place so that the rest of the logistics can start rolling, knowing that, okay, the big piece is still out there. We don't have an agreement on that yet, but we will. And in anticipation of that, we can at least get these other logistical things in motion so that when we do have a final deal, we can hit the ground running. Hopefully those things are going on. And hopefully, again, the back channels are coming to some agreements in some little place of like, do, can we agree on this? Like in the last proposal by the ownership, they offered reduced games, but the full prorated amount of the salaries. That is a little bit of a, an olive leaf, an olive, olive branch that the players can look at and say, OK, there's a little bit of room there to work on. So, again, let's all try to stay optimistic and hope that uh, both sides understand what's on the line, which they do and that they, they're working on some things, but it's, it sounds like they are, Jesse, and they can get this big topic taken care of. I think it's amazing how many moving pieces there are in these negotiations. Just be, beyond, everyone wants to focus on the money because that's what's, where you assume the two sides would have the largest gap to bridge, but there's just so much else going on, and the most important aspect is obviously the health and safety requirements and, and the postseason structure, you factor that in behind that, and there's just so many things going on that, um, I think some people want to just instantly compare it to the NBA or the NHL who have had most of their seasons accomplished already. They've played most of their seasons. They've gained most of their revenue. Major League Baseball is essentially trying to figure out how to have an entire season of baseball. And so uh, before we jump to conclusions, let's, I think, kind of wait and see what happens next. And, and hopefully we're on the right track to getting somewhere closer to baseball, assuming all the health precautions are in place. Yeah. I, I, just to echo again, the thing you said about the NBA and NHL, I've said it a thousand times on here and it's worth saying another thousand. Like it's a brutal comparison. I've heard people say, well, basketball is figuring it out and hockey's figuring it out. Soccer in Europe is figuring it out. Like you said, those teams had all come this close to completing their regular season. So in essence, all they're trying to do is put a tournament on. Um, and that's a far more simple thing than an entire season or even half a season or a third of a season uh, as baseball is trying to do. Uh, about the start date, though, kind of one thing I would throw out there that I, I think snuck a little bit under the radar late this afternoon here. Um, you know, we've talked endlessly, it seems like, about the beginning of July or maybe even July 4th weekend as the, the target date. Uh, for starting this regular season in 2020. Jason Stark of The Athletic, uh, who uh, won the award, uh, the Spink Award given out by the Hall of Fame, he floated July 15th out there on Twitter and kind of mentioned, you know, I've been hearing a little bit about July 15th. He did it very sly. It was kind of, un like I said, under the radar. He wasn't trying to make a report, but just sort of passing along that he had started to hear that date a lot. Um, so that would obviously buy everybody a little bit more time. Um, from everything we're hearing and reading, it sounds like the players realized they would need three, maybe even four weeks of spring training uh, to get ready before the season started, just to get everybody in the same place, uh, physically catch up and, and do everything that needs to be done in order to play a season, no matter how many games it might end up being. So uh, maybe it isn't 4th of July, but hey, if it's July 15th, uh, that certainly works. One other clarification point, too, and I've said this a couple of times, you know, we keep talking about spring training 2.0. 
um, and what that might look like. I think for some fans, they think like, oh, it'll just be like normal spring training. My sense is it will not at all. It'll just be workouts, maybe some inter-squad games, sim games, that kind of stuff. I have a hard time imagining teams playing other teams in spring training. I think it'll be more just getting ready and workouts and that sort of stuff. I mean, anything's possible, and we haven't seen anything specific reported on that. But, like, my guess is the Padres and Angels would not be getting together, uh, you know, somewhere between here and Anaheim to play a spring training game or anything like that. So, anyway, that's sort of uh, where we're at with baseball 2020. AJ mentioned the NBA They've got big news coming up tomorrow, it sounds like, uh, being reported by ESPN that they'll be doing their uh, big vote tomorrow, I think at 1230 Eastern, uh, to go ahead and approve their plan for coming back. The uh, NBA plan is a bubble plan, which is something we heard of at the very beginning of all of this for baseball, where it sounds like they're going to try and put everybody at Disney in Orlando, uh, have a couple of arenas going, uh, play a little bit of a a play-in tournament, and then start their postseason. Um, it, it, it'll be interesting. It'll be fun. But like we said, Bob, it's a very different animal than trying to play a complete or even a, a half or partial regular season. No question about it. And, and kudos to those other leagues for trying to get something going and resume as, as best they can. But as both of you guys have already pointed out, this is a different beast. Each, each league, each sport has its own issues to deal with. And MLB is trying to put together an entire season. And Jesse, you brought up an interesting point about the spring training, not being a normal spring training. Um, it's interesting because I can only reflect back on some of my playing years and, and seasons where we had things delayed when we lost the world series and we try to come back the next season, we had a shortened spring training. That was only three weeks. And I can speak from experience that that simply was not enough for me as a starting pitcher to get ready. That being said, I think that there's so many different nuances right now. And one of the main ones is there are more facilities available than ever for players to keep themselves in shape. None of these places existed. And I'm seeing videos all the time now of pitchers on the mound and they're throwing and they've got the Rapsodo going and they're tracking their velocity and their spin rates and everything else. We see hitters facing these live batters. There's more of these facilities available. They're better facilities. I think the players are anxious to get back on the field. So although I felt like three weeks might not have been enough for my generation, maybe this generation can actually get themselves ready more quickly on top of the fact that Because of the roster alterations, it's not as important for the starting pitchers to be able to go five or six innings like it was back when I was trying to come back and we still had a regular size roster. So all that being said, I guess my point is, yes, it's going to be a challenge, but I think more than ever, we have an opportunity maybe to see these guys at as close to game ready as they can be when it comes time to hopefully uh, ring that bell and start playing baseball again. Very interesting perspective. Yeah. Sorry, AJ, go ahead. I was just going to say that's a really interesting point because if if you want to compare baseball to where the NBA and NHL are, yes, the NBA and NHL had a little easier time getting things ready and getting things going, but they're going to be thrust right into maybe some of the most important games of their season. Plus, they've had to adjust their playoff structure in the middle of the season. And I think we've talked a lot about weather games and weather seasons, whether we'll look back on this season as something other than a normal season. Well, I think we are probably more likely to look upon a season that had parameters set out from the very, very beginning, which would be what happens in baseball, where we say, here's what we're doing. We're playing X number of games. This many teams make the playoffs, and this is the playoff structure, and this is how we're going to do it. This is when the game is going to be played. If we can get to that point, at least from where I'm sitting, that seems like a more valid season. That seems like a season that's been agreed upon and that we can kind of look back on as having a legitimate winner than a season where literally the parameters for making the playoffs changed halfway through as what happened in the NHL and NBA. Yeah. We'll talk to Craig Stammen, by the way, coming up in uh, just a few minutes about a lot of this stuff and about getting ready and about what he's been up to and uh, what what all this might mean for the regular season. Because I think there's a lot of interesting questions that we will have no way to answer uh, at any point coming up soon. So uh, we're getting there. We're getting there. Hopefully it sounds like we're getting there. But uh, some surprisingly, perhaps positive reports kind of trickling out from Twitter land from a lot of these uh, baseball reporters. Meanwhile, we we kind of continue to gloss over the health and safety piece of it sometimes when we're having these conversations because it does sound like that MLB and the Players Association are generally on the same page when it comes to the precautions that will have to be taken. Of course, that is still a very, very complicated issue, and that's something they have learned in Japan. Uh, Nippon Baseball, the NPB, the the league there, they've had two guys – uh, test positive on the Omiuri Giants. So that is a complication. They're going to quarantine them, obviously test everybody else who's been around them, contact tracing the whole nine yards, uh, assumingly at least. 
Um, but they're trying to ramp up to start their regular season sometime, I think, in the next uh, 10, 15 days thereabouts. Um, but again, this is, uh, this is not easy. This is not simple. And I'm sure all eyes are on that situation because MLB, KBO, CPBL in Taiwan, everybody wants a sense of how it's being handled, how well it goes and everything like that. Um, but we should, AJ, never, ever forget that we're not just stepping into a standard situation here uh, of a shortened season. We're still going to have this aspect of it to follow very, very closely. There's literally no precedent for it. And so I think a lot of people are going to be watching because we don't know how to handle this situation. And I, I don't know what's going to happen over there. I don't know what's I don't know what the impact will be on who has to sit and who has to be held out of practice or games or exhibitions or whatnot. But there's literally no precedent for it. And so uh, it, we're not making it up as we go along because it's important to kind of establish a, a uh, kind a, a system for health and safety to be the primary factor. But if and when a player tests positive, as has already happened in Japan, I think it's important to know where to go from there. And we will at least be kind of seeing what what to do or what not to do in the next couple of weeks from what's happening. Yeah, this is really interesting. And it, it for me, it kind of goes back to your point earlier. And you've been really diligent about this, AJ, making sure that this, this season really means something and that there's some significance to it and that there's some fairness to it. And as soon as we start talking about the health of the players, we've brought this up before. How does the season continue to be fair if teams start losing players due to COVID, whether they have it or not? Because, And when I say have it or not, look, there's a bunch of players right now that are already saying they're concerned about playing at all, even with all the testing and all the safety measures that MLB is trying to take. So, I'm, again, I hope it doesn't turn into a situation where a couple of guys get it. And because of that, other guys say, you know what, this is just isn't worth it. I'm out. And I hope that doesn't happen. And it's one of the things that MLB is concerned about when we start talking about having an extended playoffs, knowing that it's going to be the, the cold and flu season, that there might be a second round of COVID coming in the longer the season goes. So all of these things have to be taken into account. And I have a question for both of you guys. Maybe you know, because I certainly don't. The context of the, the, the positive testing for these two players in Japan, do we know, were they already in a quarantine situation similar to what MLB is talking about? And the COVID still was able to penetrate what they had been doing, or is this just two guys randomly getting it and it's not a comparable situation? Do you guys have any context to how, how those tests became positive? Yeah, they were, I don't know what the capacity which with which they were quarantined, but they were quarantined for, for the requisite 14 days. I don't know how strict that was or whatnot, okay. but it was, it, it, it didn't just happen because they were out and about. I, I think they were making efforts not to contract the virus and, I mean, the virus is persistent, as we've come to, to know very well. No, it's great to know. And I think it's really relevant because, obviously, if you're a ball player looking at this and saying, look, they're taking all the precautions that we think that should be taken and this is still happening, it's obviously something that's got to be in the back of guys' minds. So uh, it'll, it'll, to, to everyone's point, un unprecedented situation, and we're just going to have to see how it all plays out. Here's the crazy thing, too, and this is kind of back of the envelope math that I did, so take it maybe with a grain of salt, but, you know, I, I think standard thing now has sort of been, all right, if somebody does pass, test positive, they'd be quarantined, you know, for 14 days. You're playing a 50-game season. 14 days is a huge chunk. I mean, that's almost 30% yeah. season. That's the equivalent of, you know, 50-ish games in a regular year. Um, so every little thing like that, every hamstring tweak, every, you know, whatever will be amplified tremendously if you play whether it's 50 game season or even an 80 game season or a 78 game season um you know all, all those things will be to a level that we've never really seen before and you start thinking about you know fernando tatis last year and the amount of time that he missed uh with his hamstring injury suffered in washington like that would be almost the entire season kevin ac wrote the say in the ut i mean i think he said uh if you would have played a 50 game season starting on what would have been opening day it would have ended a couple weeks ago like that's how short a 50 game season is Bob. So, I mean, every little thing that includes every little game will mean so much. It does. And it, I'm just thinking about this as you're talking about it, Jesse, in terms of, okay, what if to your point, maybe there's more injuries, a guy gets a hamstring pull, twists an ankle, has the sore shoulder, whatever it may be. It's such a significant part of the season at this point. And we know that there's a limited number of guys that are on these taxi squads. Could something really bizarre happen and a team, for whatever reason, runs through all its catchers or runs through all its second <laughs> baseman? Does it become even more relevant? And we've seen this transition in the last few years for guys to be multi-positional players so that you have as much depth as you possibly can so that you're not found in the strange situation of putting one of your pitchers into the outfield because you, you've just ran out of guys. I, I, 
I don't know if that's, you know, something that people are thinking about in their back of their minds, but there's all kinds of ramifications to what you're talking about, Jesse, in this shortened season. Yeah, I guess un- unfortunate territory is uh, what everybody keeps saying with this. And and you're right. I mean, there's a million things that could happen. I'm just glad the Padres had Ty France uh, strapping on the catcher's gear in spring training. Another option uh, behind the dish if necessary. One like actual piece of real and relevant baseball news today out of Pittsburgh, uh, Chris Archer uh, by the way, what a trade for Tampa. My goodness. Uh, he had uh, surgery for the thoracic outlet um, and will not pitch this year. They do project him to be fully ready to go for 2021, uh, but the Pirates will be without Chris Archer if there is a 2020 season. AJ, uh, to me, this particular procedure is one of the most fascinating things uh, that we've sort of seen come to the forefront in the last couple of years. I've seen a couple of Padres uh, go through. I think Clayton Richard, Tyson Ross, uh, Phil Hughes towards the end for the Padres also. Uh, but basically because of the, the great discomfort in that thoracic outlet, which is basically you know where the shoulder and the neck kind of come together on the pitching side, um, they remove the top rib. They take it out. Your rib is gone. And uh, that frees things back up. Um, it hasn't necessarily caught on, maybe not the right way to say it, but it hasn't become something we see as much as Tommy John. But it's something that was almost unheard of until just a couple of years ago and is really an incredible piece of uh, medicine. And I've talked to a few of those guys who have had the surgery, and I think it's it's kind of interesting how the way it makes them feel differently pitching. You know, like imagine just every single pitch you throw, you feel a little bit of pain right here. Or a little bit, not even pain. Pain's the wrong thing to say. A little bit of tightness. And all of a sudden, that's just freed up. I think it takes a little bit of time to get back there. But, hey, maybe this has an impact on who Chris Archer is as a pitcher because we know that when he was on, he was a he was a legitimate top 10 pitcher in the league at times. He's regressed from that point since then. But uh, I think the thoracic outlet surgery is, like you said, one of the more fascinating uh, op- uh, procedures because not not as many guys get it as, say, Tommy John or whatever else. But it can have a freeing effect where you can actually pitch as yourself where you didn't necessarily have that before you pitch, but not to the extent that you feel completely comfortable in doing so. And so I'll be interested to see how he comes back from this as I am with pretty much anyone who gets this procedure because it's, it, it is unique. Yeah, it's definitely unique. And what's interesting is it's gotten better over the years. And we'd already mentioned that Clayton Richard and Tyson Ross were able to successfully come back from it. You know, Carter Capps, though, had it as well and had a much more difficult time coming back from it. Granted, he was also battling some delivery issues and some other arm issues. Um, So it's not a given that guys are going to come back. But, oh, my gosh, when you look at this trade, right, historically, when you've got guys like Glasnow and – um, it was Austin Meadows who hit 291 with 33 home runs last year that were going from Pittsburgh over to Tampa Bay. And Chris Archer just hasn't been performing the way they expected, posting a 5.19 earn run average last year. So th- th- there's some discussion that this may be one of the most lopsided trades in, in Pittsburgh Pirate history. So uh, not looking good right now. And, and But obviously we hope that Chris Archer is able to make a comeback and um, c- continue his career. Yeah, uh, I like what AJ said. I think it was Clayton Richard, maybe Tyson, who I talked to about a few years ago. And it's a, they said immediate relief uh, after the surgery. Like that that pain was just gone uh, as soon as they came out of it, which is uh, pretty remarkable. It's funny, for a long time in baseball history, shoulder injuries, as Scans knows well, were the things that got pitchers. And it's like we've been so focused on the elbow for the last 30 years, uh, but shoulder stuff does still happen, uh, just not with that same frequency. Speaking of a pitcher, thankfully, he's been very healthy and very, very, very busy for the Padres uh, the last couple of years. Craig Stammen uh, is uh, back with a new contract in San Diego this year. We actually talked to him on this show, I don't know, six weeks ago. At this point, I really have no idea. It could have been last week or two months ago, whatever. Uh, we talked to him earlier on during uh, Padres Social Hour Quarantine Edition and uh, kind of asked him what was going on, how he was doing. Got a chance to catch up with Craig again today uh, to see how he's handling things. Uh, if, in fact, we are getting closer to a restart or a start, I guess, of the 2020 season. Craig, thank you for joining us. Great to see your face again. Uh, I think you're the first guy to come on twice with us, so we uh, appreciate it doubly from you. Uh, glad to hear you and the family are, are doing as well as possible doing uh, during these times. What's changed for you since we last spoke, I don't know, a couple months ago or whatever it was? Uh, you know, I'm getting used to getting up at uh, 6.37 in the morning on a consistent basis and uh, doing the kid duties that my wife usually takes care of during the season. Uh, so that's been kind of fun. Playing some backyard baseball rather than real baseball has been another change. 
Uh, and now the golf courses are open. So able to go golfing every once in a while. Well, that's uh, that's a big part of your life, I know, and uh, an important one, certainly, along with the family and everything like that. Uh, you mentioned the backyard baseball. Uh, Petco, of course, has been open for workouts, a lot of procedures in place in terms of social distancing and, uh, you know, keeping everybody healthy and all that. Um, has that been a big help for you, though, during this time, just to sort of be able to go there and sort of be a part of some sense of baseball normalcy? Yeah, you're right. Being able to pick two hours out of your day to go do something uh, is nice when really there's no schedule for a lot of people. So, uh, and, and then also trying to get better at baseball, you know, continuing that pursuit, uh, of greatness and trying to make the San Diego Padres a world champion. Uh, that also helps too. So it takes your mind off, uh, maybe just some of the struggles people are going through, uh, during COVID and, um, able to, you know, refocus a little bit. And then when I get home, I'm probably in a little bit better mood cause I'm less stressed uh, and able to handle the kids a little bit better. I think that's something everybody who uh, with, with kids understands these days. That little bit of normalcy goes a very long way. Um, do you have a sense of how closely guys are, are following the news as it relates to baseball and what may happen, what may not happen in terms of length of season and all the other details uh, that go with it? Yeah, I think everybody's following r- really closely, actually, uh, almost to a fault because you, know, you never know what may be true and what is true. And sometimes it's better to take a step back and wait for the real facts to get out there so that we actually do know what's going on. Uh, The players union has kept us well informed. Uh, They've done a great job of separating the facts from the fiction. And, uh, you know, hopefully we're getting closer to an agreement uh, that we'll be able to be playing baseball here pretty shortly. Obviously, no matter what the season looks like this year, it will look very different than every other season you've ever participated in, any other season any of us have ever witnessed, really. Um, does that cross your mind at all in, in terms of the historical significance of it? I mean, people like me on shows like this, we argue all the time about like, oh, what would a World Series title mean if there were only 80 games or if there were only 75 games or only 100 games? Or, or for you as a player, do you not really afford yourself the luxury of thinking about silly stuff like that? Uh, we think about it a little bit, but I come down to one fact. The champagne tastes the same. <laughs> so that's what we're going for. Uh, that's what I'm shooting for. And honestly, it gives me chills even thinking about that because of how much fun that is being able to celebrate with everybody uh, on something that we accomplished as a team. I like that. And I think maybe that should be the the mantra at the start of every game. Now, the champagne tastes the same. And you're exactly right about that. I love it. Um, could this whole thing in a weird way, be sneaky good for a guy who may have thrown more innings than any other reliever in baseball the last few years, just in terms of freshness and and when we're able to get going. Yeah, you're right. Uh, I tell you what, I'll, you know, me and AJ probably were joking the other day that he goes, you're only going to have to pitch like 35, 40, (laughs) I have to pitch 76 anymore. And I started laughing. I said, well, heck, if we're only going to play that many games, I might as well just pitch every day. But, um, I guess it's a coat of armor to be able to pitch that often, but you're right. Uh, Any little bit less taxing I can do on my right arm to help prolong my career and maybe last a few more years for multiple World Series champions for the San Diego Padres, the better. I like the way Craig Stammen talks, and I know I'm not alone. Um, You know hitters, you know pitchers very well. You've been around this game a long time now. What could a bunch of super fresh arms, which is what you're going to have, obviously, mean for hitters, you think? You know, again, we're assuming things get worked out and they're able to play some kind of season. And again, whether it's 50, 80, anything in between, how big of a challenge might that be, in your opinion, for hitters? Uh, it's going to be a challenge. It's going to be a challenge with no fans. Um, I think that adrenaline is going to be a little bit different. Um, the, the cool thing about this for us pitchers is we've been, our arms have been fully strengthened. I mean, we were ready to go in spring training and now we've had, uh, you know, almost three extra months of just honing our stuff. And I can speak for some of the other guys. We've all gotten better over this time period just because we've been able to work on so many different things. But talking to the hitters, they feel the same way. Uh, I was talking to Eric Hosmer recently and he said, this is the best month of work he's been ever able to get in because his body's ready. He's as strong as he'll ever be. And he's able to get in the cage and get on the velo machine, uh, get to see live pitching here and there uh, and really have his swing locked in too. So I think it'll be advantage on both sides. Uh, It's kind of whatever you did with this time off. If you took advantage of it, you're going to be in a good spot when we get playing again. 
Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see how it all shakes out. I'm fascinated by what the baseball on the field might actually look like, um, because I think there could be a bunch of unintended consequences. We really have no way to imagine at this point, um, but that will become apparent. Uh, Craig always does wonderful work in our community. That's uh, nothing new, especially for the military families here in San Diego. You've been doing that since you arrived. But now uh, you and your wife, Audrey, taking the baton from the Pomerances, uh, Drew and Carolyn, uh, in order to help feed some frontline workers here in town. Yeah, we're excited to partner with the Padres and uh, give some people some meals. It's exciting that we have the opportunity to do that. Uh, I know Drew took great advantage of that, and my fellow bullpen mate, I'm going to have to uh, follow in his footsteps. Uh, and, and Audrey and I are just excited to be able to help in any small way. Very nice. Uh, Craig Sam in the pride of North Star, Ohio, and a very, very busy man, has been mentioned the last few years on the mound uh, for the Padres. Uh, great to see you, as always, and to chat. Thank you for doing this, for your time, uh, for everything you're doing in this community, as we said, and uh, hope to see you at the, the ballpark soon in an actual game setting. <laughs> I hope so, too, Jesse. Thank you. All right, Padre reliever Craig Stammen. He has appeared literally in more games the last three seasons than any reliever in baseball. Thanks uh, for joining us. Bring back A.J. Casvel and Bob Scanlon. Uh, first thing, guys, I am all in on team. The champagne tastes the same. I, I, I know we've had a lot of arguments and bickering about, well, if it's only 50 games, it's an illegitimate title. I'm off that completely. 50, 80, 100, whatever it is. Whoever's popping the cork at the end of October, that's that's for me, man, and 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 let it be the Padres. So so that's that. But let me ask you something. I, I talked to him about, and I really don't know what to think, Bob. Will the pitchers you think have an edge? You know, just having not pitched for as many months as they have, and being able to go into an abbreviated season like way more fresh than they're used to doing over the course of a long grind. Oh, I definitely think so, Jesse. And it was interesting listening to Craig talk about it. And we talked, we referenced this a little bit earlier in terms of the facilities and the, all the stuff that's available to pitchers now to keep themselves in shape and to make sure that their pitches are being sharp and to track their velocity and track the arm angle and track the, all this type of stuff. And you can work on things and, and they're facing some hitters along the way. But I thought it was interesting also that he mentioned that he had talked to Eric Hosmer and Hosmer was saying how valuable this time has been to him as well. So I think what we're hoping to see is we're going to see athletes that are physically at their prime and as sharp as they can be for as long as they can be. It won't be one of those things anymore of, wow, it's midway through the season and we're seeing a bunch of fatigued players. No, if anything, we might see these athletes at their best, at their sharpest, at their freshest, their healthiest, and having the most time to work on things um, to get ready for the season. But I do think the pitchers probably at the beginning have a little bit of an advantage as the hitters try to get used to seeing the ball coming live out of, out of the, uh, the pitcher's hands. Um, but, hey, you know, it's, it's just it's great to see Craig, isn't it? I mean, one of my favorite Padres, and I love that he's challenging himself to possibly pitch in every single game this season. I'd love to see that. <laughs> I think all that's fascinating. And I think maybe the most fascinating aspect for me is how it'll affect strategy if the season's significantly shorter or whatever the number of games are. Because we, as baseball fans, watch two different types of games. We watch a regular season game, which is one out of 162, and we understand what the stakes are, which are not very high. It's obviously important to win as many games as you can, but there's a lot of resting pitchers, a lot of letting starters go maybe longer than they would in a playoff game because you want to save bullpen, keep guys fresh. And we know playoff games where it's almost the opposite, where it's essentially we are going to win this game and we're going to do whatever it takes pitching-wise, whether it means taking out a starter in the second inning or using an opener or whatever. We don't have anything in between that. We've never seen anything in between that because those are the only two types of major league baseball games we've had. But if the games, if the season's 70 games long, how do you assess the value of what one win is and how do you essentially look to your bullpen and say, we're going to use you for this long, we're going to take the starter out here, especially with the rosters potentially being different. I think I am very curious to see how that all plays out because baseball is not played the same way every single time. It's played based on the circumstances and the situations and how badly you need that game. And, and I'm looking forward to hopefully finding out in the next yeah. couple of months. Yeah, seriously, that's the main thing. I mean, crude math, but like if you played a 50 game season, every game is worth three times what it would be worth in yeah. a normal season. That's it's a huge, huge deal, Bob. It is. And it, Jesse, I can't help but have flashbacks to some of my time playing both in winter ball and summer leagues when I was playing down in the Mexican League. And we would see these managers literally getting their bullpen up after the first two batters of the game. And we were always laughing at ourselves, <laughs> the guys from America saying, 
what's going on here? This is not the seventh game of the World Series. Let this guy go. But to AJ's point is fantastic, I think, in terms of how much more valuable is every single win. If that's the case, how much more valuable is every single out, every single inning? And we may see some radically different management styles in terms of how they use the bullpens, how they use the pinch hitters, especially with these deeper benches that they're going to have. So we, we could see a completely different style of baseball, which might be kind of fun. Before we move it's on, it's almost like everyone's. Top. No, go ahead. I was going to say it's almost like everyone's tied for first on the at the All Star break, you know, and we're just <laughs> yeah. playing out a pennant race style baseball the rest of the way. It, it's exciting, and like you guys both said, for me, the most interesting thing will be the strategy, particularly when it comes to pitching. What you're going to do, I imagine for sure, we'll see stuff that we've never seen before, at least on a regular basis in Major League games. So let me just very simply ask both of you, thinking about all the fun we could have with a shortened season, knowing what we know about 162 games. If you were starting MLB from scratch, for each of you, what would be the perfect number of games to be played in the regular season? All things considered, AJ and Bob, on the spot. You said AJ first, but I'll, I, I'll go first and I'll say just... maybe like 120. Sorry, I think my internet might be cutting out a little bit, but I'm, I'm, I'll go first. I think 120, 130 would be really good. And I also, I, I mean, this is a little out there, but you know, I have out there opinions. I wouldn't mind seeing like the, the top number of teams play their own like mini season after the season, because I love seeing those. Like, I think the season needs to be decided by the best teams playing each other. But uh, I, I think the best way to get maybe the most drama and a su- successful grind would be 121 to 144 or something like that. AJ, I always can't stop to think that you're probably one of those guys that wants relegation brought into MLB as well, right? At some point. (laughs) I know know what's realistic and what's not. I'll say that. (laughs) Look, I I have to admit, just catching me off guard, Jesse, I I admit that I am jaded by my just sort of love and appreciation for the 162 game season. And as an athlete that survived that many times in my career, I was always very proud of that. And I always use that as sort of a differentiator when people would say, you know, how tough is hockey versus basketball and football and baseball. And one of the things I always went back to is look over 162 game season. It's not just the physicality of it. It's the mental toughness that you need to have to get through that and the ups and the downs and the ebbs and the flows. And so I'm sort of attached to that number. And I I admit that I'm not saying that it's the best number, but I am just emotionally attached to it, not only because it's what I grew up with and lived with, but also I sort of have this affinity towards comparing numbers historically with the stats. And so all of a sudden, if you're trying to compare one guy's season who played only 120 games versus somebody that had to grind out 162, I just don't know if we lose the context and sort of that history and texture of the game that I've always been emotionally attached to. So Tough for me to, to step aside and, and change that number. Jesse, do you have a, a preference at this point? Well, I'm not going to let you off the hook just yet, Scans. Let, let's okay. pretend like there is no history, like MLB didn't exist until tomorrow. And you're the commissioner and you have an opportunity, knowing what you know about the sport, but without any concern for history. What would your number be? Um, probably 140 to 150. You can still get that grind in and also get more playoffs in and start it sooner so that you're not playing into the cold weather months. And and that's the one thing I have. I feel like the playoffs now go so incredibly long. I'd like to see the playoffs start a little bit sooner um, so that we can get the season in before it starts to snow out in New York. Yeah. And that along those same lines, I'm with you on starting not so early. Um, similar issues. I mean, you got you got bad weather in late March uh, in a lot of places in this country that really, frankly, continues through late April in a lot of places. Um, but yeah, for me, if you could do like April 15 to the end of September or maybe even the third week of September and then start the playoffs, I don't know if that's like 135 games, you know, somewhere in that range, 140, okay. yeah. something like that. But anyway, interesting stuff to kick around. All right. We like having fun with uh, on this date in baseball history. This one to me, I'd sort of forgotten about it. Uh, in 2003, Sammy Sosa, who, of course, had one of the most interesting careers for a lot of different reasons, um, got busted using a corked bat in a game. Tim McClelland, who, of course, is also the home plate umpire for the George Brett Pine Tar incident. Um, the fact that he's behind the dish for this one also is pretty wild. But, I mean, you don't often see guys get caught with a corked bat or the Super Bowls, like I guess we saw in the 70s at times. Bob, this was insane when you consider Sosa and the career that he had had, and this was still sort of in the shadow of 98 and the home run chase. I I know he's on the downswing at this point, but like what on earth was going on here? 
<laughs> this was absolutely incredible. And Jesse, I'm so glad that you reminded us that it was Tim McClellan who also, you know, back in 1983 with the George pine tar incident and everything is involved in this one. Um, but this was just, this was a really a very sad moment for me personally. And I, I remember this. And the reason I say that is because I played with Sammy. I played with him down in, in winter ball. And I played with them as a member of the Cubs when he first came over in that trade from the White Sox. So I got a chance to know him and, and be a part of his life and, and be a part of his career in a small way in, in terms of watching him grow. And this was really the start of the downside for him. This is the start of rumors being out that he had been part of the whole, you know, PED era. And, and when this happened, it wasn't within a year later that he actually gets traded to Baltimore. And, and I just remember this moment and just thinking, this is really sad because this is a guy that owned the city. This is a guy that was beloved. This was a guy that, um, you know, anywhere he would go in the city of Chicago would, would grab it. People would gravitate to him and he had his own restaurant there. And this was everything that was good about baseball and a player being a part of a city and being part of the community. And when this happened, I just felt like, Oh no, Sammy, really? And it was so interesting too, because his story was I had one bat that was corked. I used it during batting practice to, to make the fans excited about it. And I just happened to grab that one. And, and to his point, they tested 76 other of his bats and not a lot of players have 76 bats in their repertoire in the clubhouse, but he did. And none of them tested, you know, to be positive with the court. But it, it was a sad moment and, and really the start of the downslide in terms of his being uh, as iconic as he was in the city of Chicago. I'll just add that it's it's just such a weird baseball story. And it's the kind of thing that I really, really miss about not having baseball right now. Because it's one of those, I mean, you don't, like, as a, as a reporter, I just feel like with baseball, you really do never know what you're going to see at the ballpark. It, it it all feels a little more scripted and predictable in hockey and basketball and football. Baseball has so many quirks and so many weird rules, and there's so many intricacies to it that at covering a superstar whose bat breaks and ends up being corked, that that's just not on the list of things you think you'll see at the ballpark. And yet it's a thing that happened. And it's, it's just every single, every single day I go to the ballpark and I wonder what strange thing is going to happen. I go back to that Sunday afternoon in Colorado last year where there was flooding on the field or the bees. It's like, what a sport, what a sport. I really miss it. You know, what's interesting about that, that game is we, we mentioned the connection with Tim McClellan being a part of the previous, you know, bat controversy history. Billy Hatcher was actually the first base coach for the Tampa Bay Rays in this game that the Cubs were playing. Why is that significant? Because he himself had been busted for using a cork back back in 1987. So he was probably sitting over in that Tampa Bay dugout going, oh, man, does that bring back some memories? Uh, <laughs> that's, bad yeah, that's, a good that's a real good pull. But, yeah, I mean, it, it's just remarkable. And I wonder – if the moment it broke and he looked down at the handle on his way to first base, like the the heart sinking feeling that he must have had, uh, assuming he was aware, which I think is probably a, a fair thing. Anyway, that was this day. He, he said he said he wasn't aware. He said he wasn't aware. So yeah. you know, let's give him some credit here. By the way, I, I the reason I got this hat on right here, this is my Escojito hat, and this was the first winter ball team that I played for. And the reason I had to bust this out, and normally I'd bust out a Cubs hat in honor of, of Sammy, right? But this was the hat that I wore the day after. I met Sammy Sosa. And the reason I remember that moment so well is because it was my first day in the Dominican Republic. I had showed up to the team in the sixth inning, walked into my civilian clothes and just wanted to check out the ballpark and everything. The team happened to be in a game that day and they were winning going into the sixth inning. They end up losing the ball game in the ninth inning because the bullpen blew. And I was down there to be a bullpen pitcher. So I'm just standing in the, in the, the clubhouse afterwards and in my civilian clothes, the team comes in, they're all upset. Sammy's yelling and screaming. I didn't even know who he was at the time, but he goes over to this box. He opens up the box and out of the box, he pulls a revolver. He brings it over to me and he sticks it in my face. And he says, are you here to pitch? I said, yeah. He goes, are you ready? I go, no, I'm actually not supposed to be ready for three or four more days. He goes, we need you now. I was in uniform the next day wearing this cap. So that was my introduction to Sammy Sosa. <laughs> That's a great memory of Sammy. He and I, as I mentioned, Became good friends and teammates uh, later on when he joined us on the Cubs. But uh, I'll never forget my first day in the Dominican Republic and my next day wearing this cap. <laughs> wow. There's no follow-up to that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just glad he didn't pull the trigger. I mean, that's yeah, you me know, too. little things in life, right? That's one of the best baseball stories I've ever heard in my life. Um, I like we we have other stuff planned for the show, but I feel like we should end everything right there. Like never come back again. That's I'm incredible. Kind of, I didn't mean to, 
I didn't mean to run us off the road right there. Oh. I, just, I, I was like, Sammy, he's my man. Oh, yeah, I remember my first day in the in Dominican and, and making sure that I had my hat on ready to pitch the next day. So did, did you ever like bring that up to him years later or was it sort of one of those things? We're just going to pretend it didn't happen. Pretend it didn't happen because I didn't want to repeat. <laughs> I didn't want to remind him that, you know, Hey, this is possible. And you probably still have that pistol somewhere ready to go. That's uh that's an all time story scans. Thank you uh, for sharing. So that was on this day. Oh, you and a, uh, and a much more interesting thing from Bob uh, on this date in 1995 mission Valley, uh, this is something that's only happened, I think, twice in Major League history. Harvey Haddix and Pedro Martinez. Pedro tweeted about it today. 25th anniversary of a nine-inning perfect outing. Not a perfect game because he didn't finish it. Uh, and uh, incredible to think you could throw nine perfect innings and not factor in in terms of uh, getting through it. But that's what happened. Pedro was untouchable for nine innings. However, in the 10th scoreless game, obviously, uh, Bip Roberts right here would double against him. That would be all for Pedro in this game. Uh, the Expos, by the way, had gotten a run in the top of the 10th inning. They took a one nothing lead. This was a leadoff double. So Pedro obviously comes out. Felipe gives him the hook. I don't know if we're going to see it in this clip, but the guy who comes in to pitch for the Expos after Pedro leaves is Mel Rojas, senior. Uh, we've been talking about Mel Rojas Jr. endlessly on our KT Wiz, and we'll talk about him in a minute. But his dad actually came in to get the final three outs. He inherited a wild situation as I went back and looked at it. Obviously, runner on second, nobody out, one nothing game. Rojas immediately uncorks a wild pitch. So Bip goes to third with nobody out, with Finley at the plate. But Finley couldn't get him in, Tony couldn't get him in, and Cammy couldn't get him in. So a one nothing heartbreaking loss for the Padres after Pedro pitches into the 10th with a perfect game. Um AJ, I will take things we're probably not going to see for a very long time again for 500. Yeah, I, I just want to see guys go that 10th inning. We don't see that enough anymore. I, I love it. I love a pitching line where the innings pitched is greater than nine, let alone <laughs> there being zeros right after it. So, yeah, that's that's not a feat that we'll see matched anytime soon, especially if we're if we're making games count more and may, maybe adding pitchers to the bullpen. You're, you're just not. I mean, we could very easily see a no hitter lasted in the 10th but it will not be one guy most likely. Absolutely incredible. I mean, this is an amazing outing by, by Pedro to say the least. And this was early on in his career was he, he was still trying to establish himself. And you guys may recall this when he first came up, people thought he was a headhunter because he was, he was learning how to pitch up and in on guys. And so, you know, early on people did not want to dig in on this young man, but he had amazing stuff. This is an incredible outing. You got to go back to 1959 when Harvey Haddix pitched 12 perfect innings before his got destroyed in the 13th inning. Um, but we just don't see this enough. And to your guys' point, I don't know if we'll ever see it again because how often do we see guys go deep into a game? What's really interesting about this also is not only was he dominant, but when you look at his pitch count, only 96 pitches thrown by Pedro um, and, and thrown that perfecto through nine. So to me, one of the most exciting and, and fun pitchers to watch when people ask me who are my favorite pitchers of my sort of generation, obviously Greg Maddox is at the top of the list. He was one of my mentors, loved watching Randy Johnson. Um, Steve Carlton was one of them, but at the top of the list because of what he was able to do is Pedro Martinez. He had the overbearing, just dominant stuff. He can pinpoint control. And he was one of the most creative pitchers that I ever had a chance to see. He could make up pitches on the mound in the middle of a ball game if, if that's what it took. So for me, one of the one of the greatest pitchers of all time, he had one of the greatest seasons of all time in 99 when he went 23 and four and posted a 2.70 earn run average. So this was just the, the sign of things to come in a Hall of Fame career, guys. Yeah, it was obviously uh, like it's exactly right. A, a sign of things to come, because once he figured it out, uh, it was game over for everybody else eventually in the American yeah. League uh, with Pedro. So that was uh, this day 25 years ago. Perfect through nine uh, at the Murph, but couldn't finish it off. Padres honestly probably should have tied the game in the bottom of the 10th inning. And then who knows what happens. But uh, it is what it is. Speaking of perfect game attempts uh, and perfect games that may have should have been yesterday was the 10th anniversary of this one. Armando Galarraga of the Tigers, the blown call at first base. Jim Joyce, literally the 27th out of the game. Um, everybody in the moment knew that the call was wrong, um, including Jim Joyce, as he would say later. Clearly, that is it. That's the 27th out of the perfect game and uh, called him safe. And uh, just a, a heartbreaking moment that was handled with extraordinary grace and class by both parties. Uh, the pitcher, Galarraga, 
and uh, the umpire since retired, Jim Joyce. There was a phenomenal story in The Athletic uh, a few weeks back at this point um, about Galarraga and his life now. He lives in Austin, Texas, uh, and sort of what he does. This was the day after the game. Joyce had the plate, and uh, Galarraga came out with the lineup cards and uh, just an emotional moment. I mean, we see brutal screw-ups in sports and by officials all the time. I don't know that any of us have ever seen one handled in this particular way, Bob. It was pretty remarkable start to finish, top to bottom. You know, Jesse, I'm actually getting watery-eyed watching this. Um, And obviously, we all felt for Armando and what he had been denied and that unbelievable opportunity. But at the same time, in some ways, I think that because of this, he was granted for me one of the most memorable moments in Major League Baseball, one of the most poignant because of the way that both of these uh, actors in this play handled themselves, to your point, with such class and such dignity and s- sort of the, the contrition that Jim Joyce had afterwards. And you could just see how badly he felt about what had happened once he realized it. And you have to remember also, this was during a time where there was a lot of animosity between the players and the umpires. I mean, there, there always is, but there, it had been sort of escalating during this time period. And I thought the way that both of these men handled this, um, especially the next day, you know, bringing it up to home plate and Jim Joyce actually crying there. I, I, I just, I thought this was a great moment for baseball. I thought it was a very uh, human moment. I thought it was a great time for both players and, and umpires to sort of come together and realize that we're in this together we do have feelings for each other. We do care about how how we're doing our job and how it affects each other. And so as, as much as it's one of these, in some people's opinion, a black eye in baseball, I thought this was one of the shining moments. Couldn't have said it any better, Stan. I agree wholeheartedly. I think there's been some, maybe some discussion over whether, like, should we count this as a perfect game looking back because he technically achieved it, but it wasn't. And obviously if it happened now, it would have been a perfect game because the call would have been overturned on replay. I think the answer is unequivocally no. He was ruled safe at first base. It's an infield hit, but he almost has a more special place in Major League history because of because of the story, A, and because of the way he handled it. And ultimately, we can talk about numbers and perfect games or whatever, but baseball is a game about people, and the people involved handled it really, really well. Mm, beautifully said. That's uh, that's One it. other thing that he walked away with, guys, just as a reminder, he did get a Corvette out of the deal also. So <laughs> it wasn't a total loss. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it worked out for him okay. Yeah, not bad at all. Uh, I, I like that, AJ. It's it's about people, not just numbers. And the, the human story of that it, it exceeds even the perfect game, which, of course, is about as rare uh, as it gets. All right, speaking of pitching, uh, AJ has been doing yeoman's work on Padres.com, uh, top lists of uh, different positions around the diamond. We have uh, meandered our way to left-handed pitchers, I guess we all knew RJ was going to be number one on this list, uh, our buddy Randy Jones, and and he was. So AJ, I was glad to see that. Otherwise, he might have some words for you. Um, But after that, a lot of uh, a lot of fun stuff to break down the top southpaws in Padre history. Yeah, so Randy Jones is obviously number one, and I loved going back and looking at some of his numbers. I think it's unbelievable how numbers he put up, the innings, the ERA, whatever, with so few strikeouts and so many ground balls. Just I, every time I go back and look, it's unbelievable. But we'll get past him because we all knew he was going to be number one. Number two, I had Bruce Hurst. Number three, Dave Dravecki. Number four, Sterling Hitchcock. And number five, Dave Roberts, that being the very first Dave Roberts among the three the Padres had. Uh, what stood out to me, the hardest part about making a decision here was where to put Sterling Hitchcock because he probably doesn't belong on the top five of we're just looking at regular season accomplishments. What he did in the 1998 playoffs was sensational, and I don't think the Padres get where they get without him. He was an integral piece on a team that on the best team in franchise history, and uh, the pitchers he outdueled in that postseason, I don't have them up right away, but I believe he went Randy Johnson, Tom Glavin. Greg Maddox, David Cohn, I think it was in that order, and he outpitched all four of them. Now, David Cohn ended up losing that game, but he left with a lead. That's incredible. Uh, one, 123 ERA over four starts in the playoffs against three of the best teams, three all-time great teams, the late 90s Braves, late 90s Yankees, and then that Astros team. Uh, I, I had a hard time figuring out where to put him. I ended up putting him four. Well, it's great stuff. You head to Padres.com to break it down. Uh, you can argue about Dave Dervecki's place uh, with AJ Casabell on Twitter. I know he uh, he likes that. So check it out. Top left-handed pitchers in Padre history. 
on Padres.com. I like weighing the postseason stuff heavily. I think that's that's I like that. I'm I'm on board with that uh, certainly. All right, uh, before we get out of here tonight, we've got to do our KBO sadness report because we didn't have a show yesterday. We have two KT Wiz games to recap. I don't know that we would normally do that, but our buddy Odrisamer Despagne, the former Padre, pitched. Uh, two days ago, and uh, certainly it was sad for OD. This was uh, game one of a series against the Doosan Bears, an 11-8 to loss. Despagne had been untouchable all season. He was on a crazy roll, but as you see, he got knocked around big time by Doosan. First of all, 10 runs, 15 hits in five innings. What was he still doing in the game in the fifth inning? Uh, it was not good. In the previous three starts combined, he had allowed two runs. He had allowed six runs all season coming into this one, but he gave up uh, 10 runs in this one. He saw his ERA, according to unofficial Jesse math, jump from 169 <laughs> to 389. Uh, so Odrisamer had uh, a rough go of it in the first game of this series. Um, Despani, as we've talked about many times, I think is a, a character we all really enjoyed being around here in San Diego. And you got a little bit of a taste of that on, on social media. So a fan tweeted, and uh, this is all in, in different languages, uh, Spanish, I guess here. Um, like basically crushing the manager. I got help with the translation. I uh, saying, how could you leave him in? Uh, you know, he's getting knocked around, everything like this, you know, basically uh, all over the KT Wiz manager. And Despagne ends up writing back. And uh, OD says to him, hey, it's not his fault. He came to me after the second inning and said, uh, you know, can you? what do you think? And I told him I could go back out there. Uh, so I like that. Despagne kind of answering the critic of the manager on social media uh, to try and make his way through that. Sometimes, I guess, uh, Bob, you just got to wear one for the team. No question about it. And I think a combination of things here. First of all, Adrissi had been throwing great for this ball club, and the manager probably felt like, well, maybe he can find it and get himself back on track. Number two, he's a veteran. The manager asks him, do you want to go back out? And to his credit, OD says, yeah, I'm going to go back out. Give me the ball. The other thing that we have to keep in mind, guys, and we've talked about this a lot, is the bullpen has been horrible for this whiz ball club. So he may have been thinking, look, we're already losing. Let me try to suck up a few innings to at least take some of the pressure off our bullpen, which might help us win tomorrow's game. This reminds me a little bit, not exactly, but you guys remember when Greg Maddox went out there and Ward. This is a future Hall of Famer that was pitching for the Padres and just went out and just took a beating and it blew his ERA up. But afterwards, he said, you know what? That was the best thing that I needed to do for the team. So credit to the O-Dog for trying to step up and uh, suck up some innings for his ball club. And they only pitch once a week, uh, the starters in Korea. So it's a little bit different arithmetic. You're not asking them to go back out there in four days or, or anything like that. So that's the KBO sadness report after uh, Despagne uh, got knocked around by the Doosan Bears on Monday. Last night, though, our whiz... Bounce back, and in the KBO gladness report, uh, they even the series with a seven to two victory. We mentioned Mel Rojas, uh, senior pitching for the Expos in that game uh, at Qualcomm back in '95. Uh, Mel Rojas Jr. staying red hot last night. The switch hitter putting up MVP numbers for our Wiz, three for five with another homer. He is now homered in three straight games. He has four homers in those three games, and he is hitting mm -hmm. four seventeen on the season. Casavell, there is no slowing down the Mel Rojas Jr. MVP uh, battle here early on in this season. Yeah, just give it to him now. He's been. I mean, it, it does seem I don't I don't I don't watch these games that closely when I do watch them. It's usually just the next morning, and I put them on on a stream that that has been pre-recorded. But it does seem like every time something's happening, he's in the middle of it. And so that's my that's the most KT Wiz analysis I can give. Just that things are happening, Mel Rojas Jr. is a part of it, but the numbers back it up. He's been excellent. There you go. So rubber game of the series uh, coming up tonight at 2.30 in the morning. If you can't wait that long uh, for baseball, I've got you covered on Fox Sports San Diego coming up 28 minutes from now at the top of the order. Uh, one of these Padre Classic games. These have been a lot of fun to go back and watch. Day baseball in the postseason. Uh, Padres, of course, uh, in 2006 would not win this series against the Cardinals, but they would win this game Facing elimination after dropping the first two at Petco. Uh, game three of the 2006 NLDS. Chris Young on the hill for the Padres against Jeff Supon. Uh, and CY was just uh, sensational this day against the Redbirds. Supon, by the way, would go on to be the MVP of the NLCS against the Mets as the Cardinals beat them. And then eventually the Tigers to become World Series champions. But uh, cool memory and a playoff win for the Padres from 2006 behind Chris Young. Goodbye, Albert. And uh, that's coming up <laughs> at 7 o'clock 
on Fox Sports San Diego. I think that's what we're doing here. I think that's it. I think that's what we've got. Uh, AJ, Scan's a, a pleasure always. Thank you for being here. My pleasure, Jesse. Thanks for having me on, AJ. Always t- great to talk baseball with you, my friend. Yes, it is, Scan. It was great to chat baseball with both you guys, and I'll uh, uh, I'll see you next week, I guess. Hopefully, yeah. Uh, baseball's so crazy, by the way. Like, I don't know why I would recognize Juan Encarnacion like that, but I did. I mean, it's it's amazing. <laughs> like, we're all we're all so uh, into it. So that's coming up at uh, seven on Fox San Diego. Thanks again to these guys. Uh, thanks everybody for hanging out with us. Thanks to Craig Stammen for visiting. A uh, live look out to beyond center field in Gallagher Square at Petco. Uh, stay safe, everybody. Stay sane. And uh, just to remember, we'll try and be here for you best we can. That includes tomorrow at 5.30 with Don and Mud. Have a good night. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.